Look at the Boga Hunting Podcast. That's why I, I tried not to have cams on my bow. I don't have to deal with slippage or anything Shut like up. that. You just put a new string on there, you're fine. What is Boga? But seriously, that's the dumbest thing I've ever it, seen. It go, I am all about Just strap it to your pack. Really appreciate the fact that you're from Michigan and not Georgia. You don't want to be the next Mark Kenyon. No. I'm a shit show. <laughs> that's, that spot's taken. You can see how pathetic Jared's face is right now. <laughs> because that's how it looked. It was just like, is this good enough? Before we jump into this episode, we have to thank a few of our partners that help make this podcast possible. First up is First Light. Great camo, fusion, cypher. You get to pick your option, or you can go that new ash gray color. Mm. Uh, they make fantastic merino. They make great stuff for elk hunting, great stuff for hunting down south, great stuff for deer hunting by us. Um, so we rock it all year long. We love it. Check it out, firstlight.com. If you guys are in search of a new pack, then you guys have to check out the Seek Outside Short Tail. It's designed to cover three main uses, which are the Western big game hunts, it's tree sand friendly, and it's great for backpacking long trails. And it can pack out close to 200 pounds. You could carry out a Jared. You can carry out one of me if you use want. The, use the promo code BOGA, all caps, for 5% off your order. Jared's sold separately. Sturka Optics, clear, great at gathering light in low light situations. American made, one of the best warranties in the business. In fact, if you're in the woods, you find a smashed up pair of Sturka binoculars, you can send it right into them. They'll honor that warranty and you'll find yourself the proud owner of a new pair of vinyls. So just go to their website, sturkastrong.com and get behind some of their glass. If you're looking to get into the tree saddle game this year, then you guys need to check out Trophy Line. These guys have been around since the 1960s, and they've been doing it ever since. We're going to be rocking their Ambush Light Tree Saddles this year. They're lightweight, they're comfy, and they're extremely easy to use for that beginner. Head over to their website and use the promo code BOGAHUNTING10 for 10% off your order. If you're looking for a quality, handmade, top-of-the-line, traditional bow, look no further than Bivouac Bow Company. Jim and Georgia there are excellent boyers, handmade, custom. They are precise, and they make fantastic shooting bows. If you're looking for a great bow, check them out, bivouacbowco.com. There are a lot of good apps out there, but if you're a hunter and you're looking for a do-it-all app, check out HuntWise. First of all, they have GPS software that tells you where you are, where boundaries are. You, you can share locations. But it's also a, a community of hunters where you can all share what you're experiencing. We'll post there pretty regularly. Actually, that is where I have my only social media account. So if you want to see what's going on in my mind, go to HuntWise and check us out. All right, this is the beginning of a new month and a new topic here for Boga Hunting. Uh, this month, we hope to help you as you prepare your tree stands for the fall. We're going to be talking everything tree stands, from choosing the right locations to prepping each spot. But we thought we'd start the uh, month off strong with a repeat Boga guest, Mark Kenyon. Mark, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Hey, doing great. Thanks for having me back on the show. Yeah, I appreciate you coming back on. Last time we talked, um, you were in the middle of uh, you know your, your book tour. How did that go? Busy. Yeah, it was it was busy. It was fun. It was kind of a a weird thing because I was doing the digital book tour there in like December and January, and then was going to start doing some real bookstore bookstore stuff uh, in the spring. Ah. And then the whole COVID thing hit, and that changed it all. Hmm. So I had basically just the digital tour, which was uh, I guess 
not bad. It was fun. Got to talk to a lot of people, got to get the book out there. And that was, uh, that was a pretty cool thing. So that said, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not complaining that it's done. <laughs> well, I, I'm sure you're still living off the bump that you get, you know, when you're a boga hunting guest. Mm-hmm. You, I mean, sales probably shot to the roof. So you're welcome for that. that. Yeah, I appreciate that. That that really was the make or break moment yeah. of the book. So, uh, <laughs> so I had a nickel you. for every time we yep. heard that, you know. Yep. <laughs> uh, so you uh, you toured. I knew you came out to West Michigan once, but uh, for I think you were at what was it, the Schuler Schuler Books. Yep. Schuler yeah, books. yeah. Yep. We didn't make it. Yeah, that was that was the one. That was the one bookstore event I was able to. <coughs> excuse me, the one bookstore event I was able to do before everything got canceled. So it was. Uh, it was a one and done kind of deal, but it was fun. Yeah, no, that's that's pretty cool. So now you've written your first book; it's out there. Like, you got another one in you? Or are you uh, tapped out? You used all the words you knew. <laughs> definitely, definitely got another one in me. Oh. I I really enjoyed it. It was a. I think we talked about this a little bit yeah. last time that it was a tough process, but having completed it, it was the best feeling ever. Yeah. Um, and so pretty soon after that, I was like chomping at the bit, like, what's the next thing going to be? What's the next? topic i'm gonna dive into and uh yeah so i'm working on a tentative new idea right now which i'm pretty excited about it's gonna be a it's gonna be a while before whatever this turns into comes out Hmm. but uh in the works in the works do you think your next book will be a part of a college curriculum like your first book book was i I did see that post (laughs) yeah that's kind of cool i don't know maybe it'd be cool if i could do a (laughs) repeat performance i'll try i'll try to yeah that's pretty cool so well Really, this month, we wanted to have you on because you are, you know, the whitetail guru. You've been doing this kind of stuff for a long time. You've talked to hundreds of people. So, like, if there's a guy who's accumulated some knowledge, it's you. And so, like I said at the beginning, this is tree stand month. Um, And so, given your years of experience on the subject and recent work you've done in the Back 40 series, I thought you'd be the guy to talk to. First off, for people maybe who don't know, talk a little bit about the Back 40 uh, project that you're working on right now and that you've kind of year two of. Yeah, so uh, myself and the rest of the Meat Eater team, we decided to try to try to do a unique project in the whitetail world, do things something a little bit different. We decided to search out and buy a small property in the Midwest. We found a small farm in southern Michigan, and the goal with that was to use that property and this project as a way to try to explore, can you build a wildlife paradise and make it great for hunting, but also great for everything. The native plant life, the birds, the bees, the small mammals, not just big buck focused. Could you do all of that and still have great deer hunting? So that's what we've been trying to do. We we bought this place. Uh, Since last year, I've been bringing in various consultants and experts and everything from bees to prairie ecosystems to hunting to you know, just the whole gamut. We brought in birders, we brought in fire experts, that everything. So bringing all these different people in, trying to learn about the property, and then trying to make improvements, trying to find ways to to build this place back up. It was kind of just a just a place that had been farmed to death over the years. Right. Um, a lot of erosion, poor soil quality, all those different things. A lot of the fence rows have been knocked out, and we're trying to build this thing back from the ground and showcase that, while also trying to use it as a place to educate new hunters uh, as a place to bring new hunters to give them experiences out oh. in the woods um so those are the types of things we're trying to continue doing this year and we we launched the first season of the show last year which is on the meat eater youtube channel and we're filming season two now so that's that's kind of what it's all about yeah it's pretty exciting so you want one question i had when i'm looking you know watching through these videos is uh, how many birds are you at 
at the moment? How many different species have you counted? Mm, I think 36, 37. Oh, wow. So I think if I if I'm getting my numbers right, I think that sounds right. Um, somewhere in the somewhere in the high 30s, I believe. Okay. I'll tell you the truth though, it is a lot harder to identify species without an expert with you. So yeah. <laughs> I had I had an expert birder out there with me who could just call him out right away. He's like, oh, that's this, that's this, that's this. Um, when I'm out there by myself and I think about it, I hear something or I see something and then I'm fiddling around with an app on my phone yeah. trying to mm-hmm. try and identify him. Never as accurate as I'm sure I'd like to be, but it's been a fun little thing to keep me busy on slow days in the tree stand. Oh, it's it's great. That's been one thing we've been slowly working on is like, getting better at figuring out what the birds are and man like i feel like there's been a lot of times where I, i'm between like a couple birds and it's like i capture now i'm relying on my memory and it's tough without a guy or a gal who's like a pro at it, it it's tough to identify him yeah well you know what this project one thing it's really opened my eyes to is how much tunnel vision i have most of the time i'm in the woods right. when i'm out there it's it's 100 deer focused usually i'm thinking about if it's in the off season, I'm thinking about what I'm scouting for or how I'm going to set up or whatever project I'm working on. I'm, I'm so focused on that. And then during hunting season, I'm so focused on, you know, getting to my stand without spooking the deer. And then I'm getting in the stand and trying to think about everything that's going on. And I realized that I, I kind of blind myself to everything else going on. So birds are one example of something that typically I used to be pretty blind to, wasn't paying attention to. And then yeah. the second thing was the plant life. And I just didn't, I, I didn't take the time to study up and learn to identify plants, trees. So I was out there and I feel like I know everything I can know about deer, but I don't know what tree it is I'm sitting in or right. I don't know what plant it is they're feeding on. So so this past year, that's another thing I've been trying to fix is is starting to get better identifying all these different things that are out there just so you've got a, a, a more holistic idea of, mm-hmm. of what's going on. I mean, I think all those little things do help from a deer hunting perspective too. It kind of builds that foundation of woodsmanship that uh, sometimes we we kind of skim right over yep. trying to get to the sexy stuff like trail cameras and all that but uh now i'm trying to rebuild that base of the simple stuff too well and you you the more you learn about it the more it feels like you got a relationship with the thing so it's like now i'm i'm more aware of the birds because i know which ones i'm i'm looking at or this tree or you're hearing yeah exactly what am i hearing and it's yeah it, it's just you appreciate where you're at you're at more which is a really really cool thing and probably has probably a pretty profound impact on the way you manage property absolutely you just get that deeper and deeper connection to a place that uh yeah makes it just a special experience every time you go out there and you continue to see that story develop yeah speaking of birds though i've had it multiple times where i'd be in a tree stand and i would hear a blue jay start sounding off and it would start like it maybe move from my left to my right and there have been multiple times that a deer has come when the blue jay sounds off. Are you saying all blue jays are indicators? They're I'm not like saying the canary? that. I'm just saying I've had it happen. Interesting. Dude, I 100% agree. Yep. Yeah, for me, blue jays, but then squirrels are the very biggest indicator for me. Yep. If I hear a squirrel go off, or in your case, you mentioned a blue jay, like get that kind of alarm call. Yep. I instantly start focusing with my eyes on that area and just scan and scan and scan. And I don't know, maybe 75% of the time there, it ends up being an animal, a deer. Yes. Of some kind. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really a, it's a good little hot tip for new hunters to pay attention because the, the wild animals out there, they know what's going on even more than we do. So, uh, take their hints when they give it. Yeah. Well, and it's funny you mentioned squirrel because 
and you talked about the sexiness of trail cameras. You've pioneered the trail cam for the squirrel cam. You know, I was looking, watching your videos, and man, you had some monster squirrels on camera. Yeah, the squirrel cam. That was, uh, I can't take credit for that idea. Uh, Steve Ranella was the idea man for that, and I just executed on it. But, um, <laughs> I, w- yeah, well, we ran a squirrel cam, which was a, a fun thing to try. How'd you how'd you place it? Like, where are you, are you finding like a, a hollow? Like, what's your what's your or what's a your pinch play? point? Yeah. I'm guessing, you know. So yeah, it was. Uh, I, I called it a bushy tail pinch point. Nice. Um, basically, and and again, this was Steve. He said that he saw there was a there was a big blowdown and some dead trees and a big log that was running down a fence row and then connected up to a big old tree. I can't remember what kind of tree it was. Yep. Um, and so he thought. He said to himself that this has got to be a spot that a squirrel's going to run up and down, go up and down that tree, yeah. and work it across this fence row. So that was his idea. We put it there. We got a lot more other critters other than squirrels, but uh, we did get a couple red squirrels and nice. then a bunch of raccoons, possums, a groundhog. Uh, so it's, it's kind of different to see, you know, a different kind of positioning yeah. for your camera. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's that's really cool, and it's it's a good way to just know what's out there. Uh, but when when I'm watching you hunt with those guys, that was I, so last night I watched that 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 episode, um, and I'm seeing I feel like as there's a period of time at the beginning where I'm watching your anxiety kind of climb as you're getting into your your hot spots, squirrel hunting like the 15th of November, uh, September, right before deer season. It was hard to get over the anxiety of like you know potentially blowing up a spot because you're in there squirrel hunting or, or did you get over that pretty quick? I had a lot of like anxiety about it in the months leading up to it Yeah, because it was a situation where I've got a certain way I like to do things when it comes to deer hunting yeah. and when I'm focused on just deer hunting. So one of those things being keeping it as low pressure as possible. I try to get my work done in the spring or summer. I stay out once September hits and then throughout the hunting season, I only go in as you know, just when I have to, when I'm going to go in there for a kill I'm trying to be really, really detail focused, do everything right, especially, you know, here in Michigan. I just feel like you can't make a whole lot of mistakes if you're trying to kill an older deer, at least. And so and so that's how I'd usually do it. But we're just we're trying to do so many different kind of things on the back 40, whether it be going in squirrel hunting in mid-September or, you know, coming in with two or three camera guys with you. Plus, you're trying to take a guest hunter out there with you and you got to set him up somewhere he can hunt. So all these things just forced me out of my comfort zone of what I would usually want to do. And at some point I just realized I have to just give up caring so much about it being perfect and just make the best of the scenario. So by the time September 15th rolled around and I knew we were going to do the squirrel hunt, I just said, you know what? It is what it is. If it screws things up, it screws it up. Uh, Maybe it won't, you know, it's just a one-time thing. Hopefully it'll be okay and try to make the best of it. And that's what we did. And it ended up being all right. You know, I don't think, I don't think it was the end all be all. Um, it took a nice it, buck out of there. Yeah, still killed a nice buck out of there. So if if I could have done things, if it was just me and we weren't filming a show and we didn't have all these other people, do I think that I would have seen more deer and more older deer on the property? Hundred percent, yes. Like without a doubt, there were so many things we had to do that I would never do otherwise. Right. Um, but considering what we had to do. And a lot of the cool stuff we got to do, you know, bringing out new people, showing them this place. Um, we still had a pretty darn good time and got to do some fun, different things that, that made it all work out. So, you know, you got to give a little, get some. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're switching up spots this year. You got the same kind of stand locations or where are you at in the planning process? 
Uh, yeah, we're definitely going to be switching some things up. Um, some of the spots will stay the same, but there will definitely be a lot of new locations added. Yeah. Um, one thing in particular was that I had set up the farm for me to hunt it from a saddle for most of the season. Yeah. And then last minute, we changed up some of our plans and had some new guest hunters added to the schedule. And those people weren't going to feel comfortable getting up in a saddle, a saddle for yeah. the first time ever. Um, so we had to sit in like kind of rushed ground blind type setups. So this year I'm going to try to set up more things for guest hunters, for new hunters. So I'm going to put up some ladder stands. I'm going to put up some elevated box blinds, things that just make it easier for someone new or easier for somebody with a cameraman to, uh, you know, to get a first deer, that kind of thing. Cause that, that's kind of what we want to use the property for is to help educate new people, bring some new people out. So I want to make sure that the, the hunting setup is conducive for that too. But then there'll also be some setups for just me with my saddle still, which will be in the harder to get to spots, you know, that are still in the works. Yeah. I guess typically how many, um, sets are you having set going into the season then? So depends a lot on the property so for example there's a property that i hunt every year that i've hunted for almost a decade now and so i have a lot of preset stuff Mm -hmm. and there's probably and it's an it's an 80 some acre farm and i've got probably a dozen stands hung up and every year i keep them keep them tightened up and trimmed out and all in good shape sure so some places i'll have a bunch of stuff hung up like that but then i also am trying to have a bunch of different ideas or stands or not stands but trees prepared Mm -hmm. or located for possible mobile setups because now i'm running you know for me it's the saddle you could do this with a mobile tree stand too but i'm trying to bounce around more based off sightings based off new uh, sign and so in those cases i'm not going to have you know 10 stands hung i'm just going to have 10 trees pre-planned and maybe pre-trimmed and maybe with some steps up them and then some other ideas in my head too so that okay if October 30th hits and I've seen this thing and this thing, all right, well, I think based off of that sighting, that little inside corner by the edge of the swamp is probably where I need to go. Yeah. I'll just slip in there with the, with the saddle or the mobile, mobile tree stand if that's what you're going to do and, and hang up there. So I'm shifting a little bit away. I used to be, you know, I want 20, 30 stands all over the place. I've moved a little bit to a minimalist kind of strategy now with the saddle, but the same the same planning plot process still applies. Yeah, that's that's really the beautiful thing about the saddle is if you get into an area that you want to hunt and you like you don't have that perfect tree for that mobile tree stand, you can still get up in a saddle and you can still be efficient in what really whatever tree you want to be as long as you can effectively get up in it. Right. So, yeah, it's pretty it's pretty versatile. Yeah. And it, I think the reason why I think you get this when you when you switch to a lightweight mobile tree stand, you get this to a degree, mm-hmm. and then you get it even more so with a saddle, which is this freedom in that you don't have the burden of taking down a big heavy ladder stand or right. the burden of going and getting something new and hanging up a new tree stand, a great big new tree stand somewhere whenever you think you need to move. And so because of that burden, because of that inconvenience, oftentimes you'll just stay at the spot you're already in yes. because you don't want to deal with the hassle. Exactly. But now when I'm in, when I'm in my saddle or when you're in like a lightweight, you know, hang on or whatever it is. And it's not as much of a hassle when you know, you got to move, you're much more likely to just do it because it's not as inconvenient. It's, yeah. it's, it's quicker, it's faster. And so now I've, I just feel unburdened. I can just bop from place to place and it's not a pain in the butt. And I think I'm more effective because of it. Yeah. And it just kind of opens up 
so many more areas and yeah. so many more opportunities to hunt. So that that one little grove of trees where you couldn't have gotten up in a tree stand. Too you, crooked or yeah, too small. You now possibly have the opportunity to well, do that. Even I'm seeing guys, uh, they'll pop up on a, blind, a ground blind. They'll pop up like a makeshift ground blind, and they'll actually use their saddle as a chair. And they'll yeah. literally just sit on the ground, you know, or hmm. off the ground. And you can kind of use the tree and get stay behind it, which is pretty yep. sweet. I was going to do that yeah, for turkey season. I didn't end up doing it. It's nice. It's it's a nice versatile tool to to add to the to add to your toolbox. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So going into this year, I mean, you've got you've got your I, kind of spots picked. Um, have you do you have you done a lot of prep so far? Or what time of year are you you prepping your your spots? So I do a lot of my scouting in the first part of the year. So like shed hunting season through mid spring. Yeah. Um, so I would say in February and March and April, I was doing a lot of that. And that's when I'm trying to, you know, just rethink old properties that I know. And just something I'm trying to do a better job of is not let myself get in the rut with a spot I've hunted a lot. So I want to look at a place with new eyes every year. I don't want to get too locked into the old way. Yeah. So I go in there, even if I've got stands hung, even if I already know pretty well, I want to try to like zoom out, look at the big picture again, then zoom in when I'm out there walking on the ground, rethinking, okay, what's this sign telling me? What is this? Is this spot where that buck was really coming from all these years when I thought he was in position A? Maybe it was here position B. If that's the case, what does that mean? So I'm going and I'm trying to do that work early in the spring. I used to hang a lot of stands in the spring. I'm not doing that as much since I'm just not hanging as many permanent stands anymore. So instead, I'm I'm picking spots and picking little zones in the early spring. And then in August is usually when I go and do my final prep. So if I have pre-stung, pre-hung stands, August is when I go in there and check the straps or replace a stand or trim out lanes. All that stuff's going on in August. I'm, I usually, if I have to, try to clear out some trails to stands. All that happens at that point. Hanging pre-hung steps for a saddle setup, that all happens then. And then finally, in-season Again, going back to what we just talked about, I'm doing a bunch of hang and hunt stuff in season two. Yeah. So you're when you're walking around, and maybe I'm putting you on the spot here. Uh, when you're walking out in the woods and you're looking for that perfect tree stand set setup, what is like the perfect in your mind walking through the woods? What does perfection look like? Mm. So you know, of course, it's all very variable sure. based on the situation and what you're looking for but i'll give you a, an example type scenario i want something that number one gives me good access in and out so a bulletproof perfect stand has got to be something that you can get to and that you can get out of without spooking deer um so a perfect scenario like that might be one where you can float a boat across a small pond and get to a stand just off the edge of the pond or something where you walk a dry creek bed in so you're 15 feet below the rest of the ground and you can walk quietly down that yep. path and then slip up the edge of the creek and hop up into a tree that's great access or entry or it might just be you know a cow pasture you walk through that deer don't usually like to hang out in so you can come in and out of that cow pasture so that's going to be a perfect thing is to have some way in and out secondly i want to be you know within shooting range of a spot that a buck should pass through for a minimum of three reasons. I don't, I don't remember exactly where I heard this first, but someone had mentioned this, uh, the, the rule of three. Don you Higgins. should never, 
that that's it. Don Higgins. Yeah. So the rule of three, you know, it. it's basically saying that any spot you pick, you should be able to list off easily at least three good reasons why a buck should come through here. So I, I try to apply that as much as possible. So back in the old days, when I was just trying to figure this stuff out, I would walk through the woods and I'd see a rub and I'd be like, all right, that looks good to me. And I'd hunt there because there's one good reason. The right. one good reason was that I thought I saw a rub, which means a buck had been here before. That was good enough. That's not good enough anymore. So now I want to find a spot where let's say the, here's three hypothetical things that might line up. Number one, this is a spot where two fields come together and there's a thin strip of timber and a ditch in between them. So it's, it's, sure. let's say it's a 40 yard wide, 30 yard wide strip of timber and a ditch that runs between these two fields, creating a really nice cover related pinch point. The deer don't often want to go out in the wide open field if they don't have to, they'd rather cruise through that timber edge. So there's one reason why that's a good spot. Second reason, let's say maybe while I'm looking at this little pinch point, I also see that there is two huge hub scrapes, like uh, one of those spots that deer come back to year after year and it becomes a signpost. It becomes that communication area that bucks are always going to check throughout the season. So, okay, here's another good piece of sign that tells me this is a great spot to be. And uh, number three, let's say it has that great access that I mentioned. So it's got the the creek, maybe that ditch I mentioned, maybe you can walk the edge of that ditch right in. So even if it's, you know, five in the morning and maybe there's deer out in that field, you can still slip down that ditch out of sight and get right to a tree that allows you to get up in there and hunt it without spooking a bunch of deer. Um, that might be three good reasons. Maybe add to it that one of those fields has got the best food in the area right now. Maybe it was a freshly cut cornfield. And so if you can slip in there without being detected and you're in this funnel there's bedding areas in either one of those chunks of timber, and you've got a fresh cut cornfield right in front of you. I'm thinking, whoa, this is going to be yeah. this is going to be a, a great spot for that November second hunt or something like that. Yep. So as far as a location, that's the type of location that would scream great to me. You could also paint a picture like that, you know, deep in a bedding area in some nasty thicket. All the different you know variables could be different, but I'm looking for something like that now. I mentioned access. I mentioned the different attracting qualities that an area has to have for bucks to come through. Mm -hmm. I also want to pick the right tree. So <clears throat> for it to be the right tree, it's got to be obviously within shooting range of that location. There's a couple locations that you think a buck's going to pass through. So for me, I want to be within 30 yards of that spot or the couple spots where the deer is going to come through. That tree's got to be in a place that, you know, from a wind perspective, isn't going to get me in trouble. So I want to be downwind at least to a degree of the areas I think a buck's going to come through. Now, usually the best way to do this, and it's it's much easier said than done, but it's trying to find a way to cut the corner right. on those things where a buck is going to be moving through your area thinking that he's using the wind in some way. So there's no hard set rule. Bucks do crazy things. They don't always follow the playbook. But many times a buck, is going to want to work through an area using his nose in some way, whether that be with the wind right in his face so he can smell what's ahead of him or maybe quartering to him or quartering from behind him so he can smell what's off to the side while seeing what's up ahead. That's probably the most common way you'll hear about a buck moving. Right. Not to say he won't do the opposite, but, you know, in a case like this, you know, if he's heading towards a bedding area, he's probably going to want to be smelling it as he's going. Or if you're hunting downwind of a bedding area, that's a great, way to think about how the buck's going to move because he's going to want to smell the downwind side of that bedding area. So position yourself in a way that 
the buck can do that and come through there and do the thing he wants to do, but not smell you. So you got to situate it so that the wind is you know, just at off an angle so that he still has it quartering to him, but your scent is just a little bit off of that path you think is going to take, or maybe there's some kind of barrier. Like maybe it's the wide open field behind you that, you know, he's not going to come out in that wide open field. You don't think so your wind can blow there, but he'll come just ahead of you through the cover. Or maybe it's a pond that your wind's going to blow over that he can't walk into different things like that will help make a perfect tree. And then finally, you know, the, the, the cover in the tree itself. So I want to be in a tree that I will not be spotted in easily. I hate being in trees where you turn your head a quarter inch to the left and the deer spots you. Right. Uh, I want to be able to move. I want to be able to get situated. I want to be able to position myself for a shot without being completely paranoid that that deer is going to see me up there. So in a perfect world, you know, something like an oak tree with a bunch of branches that might still be holding leaves, that's a great tree to be in. Uh, cedar trees, pine trees, where you can do some trimming ahead of time and kind of carve out a nice spot in there. Those are just money if you can find a spot like that you can get a little uh, hole right in those pine trees if you can yeah. you can burrow it out and you get a little scent cover oh you just well. feel like you're you just feel like you're invincible when you've got a spot like that yeah. so yeah i if i had all those things lined up that for me would be a perfect kind of setup um at least as an example mm-hmm. now are you uh do you have any in mind right now that anything that comes to mind when you think of perfect stand for this year do you, you have some picked out already um, uh, let me, let me share one example, I guess. Um, there's a spot, uh, that is, it's got a couple of the factors I just talked about in yeah. line. It has two bedding areas and actually almost a, a small third one right next to it, but it's, it's basically a stand set up to be downwind of a path that a lot of bucks take when they're cycling from bedding area to bedding area to bedding area during the rut. So this is back in the cover and I've got big open timber behind me. So it's, it's old mature maples and beach and different things like that, that there's nothing that the buck, that the deer are going to be feeding on. And it's too wide open for deer to really want to spend a lot of time in there. They're not bedding. Um, occasionally they'll pass through, but it's not a hot spot. So that's my safe area for my wind to blow. Sure. But then upwind of me, I've got a, a small thicket that is kind of a micro bedding area that usually is like one little doe family group that hangs out there. Mm-hmm. And then directly upwind of that is a small food plot. And then further upwind of that is a big crop field. So you've got these the series of attractions. You've got the big open food source funneling down to the small food plot, funneling down to the micro bedding area. And then on either side of that, further away from me, not within shooting range, but kind of following this line I'm on, are two big bedding areas. And so during the rut, these bucks want to, the does want to be in one of those three bedding areas because of those two food sources I just mentioned. Sure. And then the bucks want to travel and connect the dots between the big bedding area to the other big bedding area, and they always hit the micro bedding area on the way. And so this tree stands just downwind of this really really thick stuff. I've got the safe wind. I can catch bucks cruising that edge. I'm in a tree. I, I shifted this tree. I used to have a setup, a permanent setup, that was just a little bit too far from the edge of that cover, I realized last year. Gotcha. And just a little bit too exposed. It was in the crook. It was like one of those trees where three trunks come out at the bottom. Oh, and yeah. And I had mm-hmm. it set up in between the three. Yep. Well, 
for two years I sat that stand and I was seeing bucks, but just wasn't quite in one case I spooked a buck I wanted to get a shot at and another time the buck was just out of range so I shifted last year mid-season I moved one day midday with my saddle set up and pushed in about 25 yards closer to that micro bedding area so now I'm like on the edge but I found that for whatever reason when the bucks came through there they weren't right on the edge they were going to be 15 yards into this thick stuff so I positioned to be right on that edge so I could shoot to that 15 yards in spot um, in a tree that had a bunch more branches a bunch more junk this is again another cluster of maples I think so I've got better cover I've got the better positioning where I went from you know something I we talk a lot about when I'm doing my podcast is you at first you're like trying to find the spot which is like this area. Right. So I found this area. I found all these factors I described, and it looked good, and there was a good sign, and I, I saw the deer were doing this. And so I had to stand in the spot. Mm-hmm. And for two years, I was seeing deer. I was having close calls, but I wasn't killing them. So then this past season, I tried to find the spot within the spot, that micro adjustment. It was just a 20, 25-yard sure. adjustment. And I think this year or next year, whenever it pans out, I think that will be the small difference that when it comes to bow hunting, especially for mature bucks, those little adjustments are what make the big difference. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's mm-hmm. pretty cool. I mean, just kind of fine tuning based on what you're seeing as you go is huge. And, and I like, like you alluded to earlier when you're, um, when maybe when you've got a, a, a less mobile setup or, or maybe a less mobile frame of mind, you're, you're like, you're like, that's my spot. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to hunt it out, wait it out and get, make it work. And it sounds like just those, just changing it a little bit, um, is a huge, huge deal. Oh yeah. I used to, I used to do it way too much where I would just, I'll just wait it out. I'll just see, I'll just see. And then so many times I'd see that buck I wanted move through 40, 50 yards away or whatever, too far out of range because I didn't make the move. So yeah, I'm trying to get better about that. I've started sometimes I've got on a couple properties, I'll have some stick setups that I'll kind of put up and then I'll go hunt another spot with sticks. And so there'll sometimes be like one set of extra sticks in a tree somewhere. Yeah. But I might be go hunting to hunt excuse me i might be going to hunt another permanent setup so for example last year during the rut one of the things i did was on on this property in particular i had a a set tree i wanted to hunt that day but i still threw my saddle in the bottom of my backpack just in case i saw something that changed my mind Mm. or if i saw something i wanted to adjust to and i knew that hey i know i've got a set of sticks 100 yards away that's just sitting there so i'll throw the saddle with me it doesn't take up any extra space, hardly at all, hardly any more weight. And if I see something, you know, at 10, 30, 11 o'clock, I can scramble down, grab those sticks and make the adjustment if I need to. Um, it's just so nice to have that little insurance policy that you can be versatile if and when you want without, you know, it being this huge hassle. Yeah. Now, so one question, though, as I'm kind of thinking through this, you, you mentioned um, a minute ago cover, like you want to have a lot of good cover. But say you're out there, and I mean it's it's a great spot, but your only tree options are just sparse, sparsely covered. Are, are you what are you doing to to compensate for that? Are you sticking to the ground? Are you trying to create cover, or, or what? What's your move in a situation like that? So for me personally, I will still hunt the tree. Okay. So it's not perfect, but I'd rather be. I've I've waffled on this, and okay. I know a lot of people have different opinions on this, but I would rather be in the perfect spot than have the perfect tree. So by that, I mean, if the cover is not ideal, but it's the place to kill, I will take my chances with getting spotted to make sure I'm in the spot. I could get a shot rather than sit in the sexy tree. That's 30 yards off where I really want to be and never get spotted, but never have a chance of the deer. So 
So I will go in that tree and, and make the best of it. So if it's a, a tree that doesn't have a lot of cover at 20 feet, but maybe there is a little, there's some decent cover at 15, maybe I'll go a little lower than I usually would to take advantage of that, that cover there. Yeah. Or maybe it's super duper sparse, the whole tree, there's nothing. In that case, maybe I'm going to go to 25 feet, as high as I can get with my sticks and aider or whatever, yeah. so that I'm above the eyesight of as, as many deer as I possibly can. Um, I'll also set up with a saddle. You always do this, but if I was using the tree stand, I would set up pointing away from where I think the most deer activity would be. So you can use the tree trunk itself as some sure. cover. Um, and one of the nice things you can do with a saddle, which I did a couple of years ago and helped me kill a buck uh, in Montana on some public land, was that in the saddle setup you can maneuver your positioning, you know, whenever you want. So I will I will set up with the tree trunk in the way where I think the deer will come from. And then I will slowly spin to use the trunk or any cover on the tree as cover as a deer is moving. And then when I'm ready for a shot, I can slowly swing out of that position to a place I could shoot. So in the case of this buck, there was a buck coming. I, sw- I slowly eased so that the one branch on the tree and the tree trunk was in between me and him. And then as he came around, just before I could take a shot, I just eased out from that hidden yeah. position because I knew I was going to take a shot. Right now, I exposed myself for a couple seconds to get that shot, and he never knew what was coming. So you can you can take advantage of that movement a little bit if you do it in a smart way to to squeeze some some cover out of what might not be a whole lot Mm -hmm. uh one other thing i'll do is you know when i'm setting up in a new tree i i don't want to do a ton of trimming i don't want to have to do a ton of trimming on a hanging hunt if you don't have to because i don't want to be walking all over the place but usually you have to do some and so what i'll often do is whatever i have to cut i will try to attach around the tree around me so sometimes that's sticking it in the base of my tree stand or my saddle platform sometimes i'll just hang it in branches above me i brought zip ties with me on occasion and i'll zip tie stuff right then and there on you know the side of the tree or on the side of the platform so you add that cover around you and it it does two things it gives you a little bit more of that opportunity to be hidden it also keeps what might be a stinky thing that you touched from being on the ground instead of that being on the ground where a deer could be walking by it it's up in the tree with you so that's a little thing. I'll, I, I always bring, you know, a little piece of uh, paracord to pull my bow up or different accessories. And so what I've done is I'll do some trimming on the ground. I'll tie each piece of limb onto that paracord. And then when I climb back up to my stand or to my platform, I'll just pull up that rope with, you know, six big branches attached to it. And you pull them up and then stick them in different little nooks and crannies. And that can that can cover you up pretty well in a pinch. Yeah, no, that's we're we're big fans of the uh, zip ties. I like mm-hmm. I like using those or tying something up. I've even used um, I'll put my, I'll hang my backpack usually in the tree, and I've definitely hidden behind my backpack before. You know, yeah. you have it in front of you, you <laughs> nice. just kind of stick behind it because it's not moving, obviously. So right. it, it works pretty well. You know, something I've never done, but as you say that, I should have been doing this. You could use your backpack to hold branches too. I didn't think mm-hmm. that. Either. So. So I should I should in the future, you know, hang up my backpack and then use like the water bottle holders and right. different little straps and stuff to strap a bunch of tree branches around you. That'd be a easy way to do it. We call that a bogo revelation right there. There you go. Yeah. They usually <laughs> they come bo- out once bogo, in a while. Bogo wired to hunt revelation. That's right. Yeah, oh, yeah sorry. sorry. Yeah, we gotta get that right. Yeah, that's my bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh so you, you mentioned twenty feet. Is that is that your standard? Uh, are you uh twenty five, fifteen? What's your what's your how high do you like to get ideally? It's it's gonna be different based on the situation tree all the time, but probably that 20 foot would be the 
average the sweet spot. I'm not the guy that likes to be up there 25, 30 feet all the time. I've been with some people. Like, I went and scouted with John Eberhart one time, and yeah. he set a stand. I swear it was 45 feet up. It was nuts. <laughs> he goes big. I mean, it was, it was crazy. Yeah. Um, God bless him. Good for him, but I'm not doing that. Um, so, yeah, I like that 20-foot mark. That feels like you're you're pretty well out of the eyesight of of most peripheral vision as long as you're not doing something stupid up there. But at the same time, you still have a decent shot angle. Yep. When you get that high, you just limit your window of that, that arrow coming down. Yep. Um, and then it's just unnecessary, I think, in a lot of cases as far as the amount of time it takes to get farther up there. Right. The extra steps or sticks you got to take with you so yeah at the same time though i don't feel bad if i'm at 15 or 16 feet or something like that if the cover's there and i i continually find myself like thinking man maybe i can get away with 12 in right. the right tree mm-hmm. um so i know early on you know when i was just trying to really figure out this mature buck thing you would hear certain things certain numbers like you gotta be 20 feet or you gotta be 25 right. feet um and, and because like such and such person said it, I felt like I had to do it. So yep. I'd always like push it to try to get that. And I'm, I've just been learning more and more that these are suggestions. They are not rules. Sometimes 10 feet in the tree with the right tree and the right cover, that's the best place to be. Yep. Sometimes it is 22 feet. Sometimes it is 25. But don't lock yourself in just because what I said or, you know, what anybody else said. Well, that's one of the great things. You know, I listen to your podcast all the time. One of the great things about your podcast and a message that you've kind of conveyed well is that, there's like a lot of ways to skin the cat, you know, and people are doing it without doing any scent control or with tons of scent control, you know, John Eberhardt versus, you know, a couple other guys. So like, like you said, there's just a lot, you got to figure out what works best for you Mm -hmm. and what might work for you might not work for the next guy. Right. Well, cause getting up 30 feet for me with a recurve, that's a, that's a pretty tough, that's a, I mean, it's not impossible and I'll, I'll definitely do it, but the higher you get with like a, a traditional bow, you're having a lot harder time you're going to see a lot more of a it affected by the height than maybe mm. with a compound bow yeah yeah it just opens you up for a whole lot uh, a bunch more variables that can mess yep. you up yeah um you mentioned the other thing that i wanted to touch on was access and exit um i think it was actually an article you wrote or maybe i saw uh, the running into your tree stand like running <laughs> yeah. out to it you want to yeah. explain that, that that thought process behind that and who came up with it yeah so this, I first heard about this from an article I read from, maybe it was an article I read or a conversation. I'm not sure. But it was Bill Winky talking about a friend. So Bill Winky had a friend who had done this. And then I heard about that and looked into it more and talked to more people about it. And, and it made some sense in certain scenarios. So imagine this, imagine this setup. It's uh, November 1st. You're super stoked to go in. You're going to go into one of your best spots, but it takes a, it's a long walk in. You got to go through a bunch of cover. You got to get, you know, we're walking through some timber and it's one of those mornings that's perfectly still. There's not an ounce of wind and there's a fresh frost on the ground. So the leaves are as crunchy as can be. Mm-hmm. Every step echoes, you know, a mile away, a deer can hear you take a step. And every one of those steps, you cringe, a little bit of your heart breaks, your soul is slowly dying as you know that every deer on your property hears you. Those days are painful, right? You just want to get to your stand, but at the same time, you don't want to spook everything. So the theory or the idea here is that some days you just can't get to your spot quietly. You just can't. It's physically impossible to get to your spots quietly. So embrace it. Embrace the noise and use that noise to 
get to your spot quickly while sounding like something that's not a, that's not a human. Yeah. So you got to make a sound. So don't sound like a human. So the idea here is to do that. Run to your stand or jog or like take a couple quick steps and then stop and then jaunt. You know, take a couple 10, 10 yards sprint and then stop and make a bunch of noise and just kind of sound like a deer that's running around at that time of year. Right? There's a lot of noise in the woods. Oh yeah. There's just there's just not a lot of step, 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 right. step. So don't do that human cadence. Um, so I have done this. Not a ton. I don't do it a lot. But every year, probably a time or two, I'm not saying I sprint to my stand, but there are days when I realize, okay, I'm I'm going to make noise, so let's just rip the Band-Aid off quick. Get it over with. Rather than trying to slow step my way here for an hour and still spook everything, I might as well just get there in five minutes and not spook anything for the next 55 minutes. Right. And so, yeah, I'll I'll, I'll, I'll take some really fast walks or jogging steps for 10, 15 yards and then stop. And then I'll step, step, stop. And I'll step, 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 stop and make a ruckus. And, you know, it's hard to quantify what kind of positive impact that's sure. had. But it makes sense. It makes sense in like a weird way. Yeah. And and I think it I think it can help in certain scenarios. Jared, you got a you got any uh, light to shed on this uh, situation? I got a little something for you, Mark. Um, let's let's hear it. So last hunting season, when we were out in Wisconsin, I had that exact same idea where we were in a. Um, it was the type of day. It was very quiet. You know, peak rut. Everything was just in play, and you don't want to be traipsing around the woods making a bunch of noise. So, what I did is I made up the um, patent pending. Boga Buck Run. Yeah. So I. <laughs> you got to get the branding in yeah, there. Yeah, of nice. course. Yeah. Um, I put a. Got a good ring. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the triple, triple B. Oh, yeah. no, it's not triple B. No, it's, it's double. double B. Um, I put a grunt tube in my mouth <laughs> and nice. I, I jogged to my stand and gave out a few little grunts on the way, snapped some twigs, did this, that, and the other. And believe it or not, I had deer running in towards me five minutes after I stopped. Yeah, you had a couple of bucks come awesome. charging yep. right in, right? So I can completely attest to that, that with that's, evidence. That's uh, evidence. Yes. That was great. All yeah. right. Well, I'm glad that's that's some strong support for the theory right there. I, I'm going to feel even better about doing it now. God, I hope so. At some point, we're going to reach critical mass where the evidence is enough to be statistically significant. So we just got to keep doing it so we can, you know, test. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the real trick is you got to have a mature buck be at the bottom of your tree stand as you're pulling your bow yeah. up in the tree. <laughs> exactly. You get that, and then and then he lingers long enough for shooting light to arrive. <laughs> yeah. And then you kill him. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's uh, but it, it's but I like that way of thinking because mm-hmm. think, thinking a little outside the box, especially when it comes to access and exit, is critical. I mean, you know, it wasn't that long ago where putting on hip waders or you know. Uh, chest high waders was like totally ridiculous sounding to get into a tree stand whereas now it seems like it's a little bit more accepted or even taking a boat through a swamp mm-hmm. to get to a spot or, or whatever just to get creative to get into that that just perfect spot that otherwise you'll blow up walking in your normal way yeah and you know what i think it is i think that like we talked about there's there's a thousand ways to skin the cat right of trying to kill a deer but there are a few core principles like there are certain rules yep there are there are a few things like you need to find a way to get to and back from your hunting location without spooking deer. Mm-hmm. That's one thing you got to do. There's a bunch of different ways you could do it, 
you could run in and do the Belga Buck Run. You yep. could ride an e-bike. You could take a boat. You could take hip waders, whatever. So yep. that's like a thing you got to do. Uh, another thing, you have to keep deer from smelling you. Yeah. How can you do that? You could do it the John Eberhardt way with like crazy, really, really, really particular scent control. Or you could do it the Dan Infault way, which might be, I don't care about scent control at all, but I'm going to play the wind and thermals perfectly. You've got to get a deer within your comfortable shooting range. That's a rule. You got to get a buck within comfortable shooting range. How you do that could vary. You could bring deer to you with a food plot or a mock scrape or a grunt tube. Or you could go to the deer by being super mobile and constantly moving based off of the sightings you see. Yeah. Um, so there's all these things, but there's, I feel like a new hunter just needs to wrap. I, I need to, I should probably try to identify like what these five or six or seven core absolutes like a framework. are. framework, yeah. Yeah, like a framework. And then once a hunter understands that framework, then you can just plug and play all the different ways to do each thing into there fitting your scenario your gear your skill set your area and that's that's kind of how you do it well that's that's a great point because you know and this is true with a lot of things in life once you get that core framework of thinking down you find a ton of freedom in it it opens up this world of to try things and once you if you're sticking to those basic truths Suddenly, you know, the world opens up and what could be applied or what could be tried and, and what would actually work. And you get a lot more creative and more effective. So that's that's a that's definitely a great way to think about it. Yeah. And I think that's a big step for a hunter, at least taking my own path as an example. And I think a lot of other people I've talked to, you go through these steps where first you just you go out there and you're blind. You don't know what you're doing. You're stumbling around or maybe you're following your dad or a friend and just following them and doing what they tell you. Yeah. And then you start doing it somewhat informed, but you're following the rule book. You're following what this person told you, what that podcast told you, what that magazine article said. You're doing all this stuff, still kind of blind, but guided to some degree. And then you, you reach this, I don't know if it's like a bell curve. You reach the top of the bell curve where all of a sudden you do what you just described, which is you understand the framework and you're able to start freelancing. You can yep. start freestyling it with your own thoughts. And that is a big paradigm shift, I think. Once you're able to insert your own experience and your own thoughts into all these other playbooks that you've got in your head, that's when it becomes a lot more fun. I think yeah. that's when you become a lot more effective. And that's when you start learning yourself. And once all that stuff comes together, I think that's when you start getting, you know, what, what some people refer to as that gut instinct or the killer instinct or intuition or whatever. I think that's that's when you're at this new place as a hunter where, where it kind of comes together in this kind of magical way. Yeah, your, your subconscious at that point has it ingrained and it's kind yeah. of doing the thinking for you and, and telling you what, what's going to work and what's not. No, that, that's pretty incredible. Well, Mark, I mean, we're coming up on time here, but I got to ask, like, for 2020, you know, how are you feeling about the year? Are you excited for, for this fall? I mean, are you going to be COVIDed out? Is COVID going to stop hunting season? Where where are we at? Oh, my gosh. Uh, I sure hope not. <laughs> it better not. It better not. Um, no, I'm, I'm stoked. Very, very excited. It's going to be another a little bit different year than usual because of the back 40. Yep. Just in that. There's a lot of last year and now this year, it's a little bit less about my personal hunting yeah. and a little bit more about the project, about new people, about bringing folks out there and, and helping, you know, helping them out and use this as an educational resource. So a lot of my season, a lot of the best parts of my season are going to be basically out there 
you know, hunting a little bit myself. Also, I don't want to say guiding, but but helping these new hunters or guests or whatever. Yeah. So that's going to limit me some. But I do have some personal trips still. I'm going to do some whitetail hunting in Idaho this year, which I'm pretty stoked about. And some new public land that I'm interested in exploring. I am tentatively planning a public land hunt out in Nebraska nice. in mid-October, which I'm excited about. And then I've got a buck in Michigan on one of my local properties that I've been watching for three years now this will be the third year i guess what's his name uh this is uh tran tran Tran, yeah tran yeah so uh i'm really excited to get after him he's gonna be a super cool buck tons of tons of encounters with him lots of history found his match set this winter uh so really 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 want to get a crack at him (laughs) and uh and finally gonna be a tentatively i don't know if this is going to happen or not but i've been talking about trying to go to new york or maine and track a deer down in oh the snow. man yes that's something i really want to do so so trying to make that happen still as well yeah we i was just watching this uh series sea bucks about hunting in the the great northeast woods big tracks of yep. land going to islands yeah it looks pretty like cool that. yeah it's it's totally different than the michigan style or even like the midwest upper midwest style that mm-hmm. we're used to uh for sure so that that'll be exciting to follow follow along and see how you do out there yeah i think one of my favorite things like i, I love my bread and butter midwest hunting love it but i also have really gotten a kick out of trying to do the whole whitetail thing in situations totally different than what i'm used to yeah so i've loved going out west and hunting these like prairie bucks that's been a lot of fun now i really want to try to do like the mountain thing like the tracking deer in the snow thing. And yep. then something I want to do, it's probably not going to be this year, but maybe next year, I want to like do a backpacking in the mountains, big woods hunt. Maybe in like northern Montana or northern Idaho or northern nor- northeast, something like that, Yeah, where you're trekking in there and not snow, just trying to find them in like the big woods. I think that'd be a lot of fun. I want to do like a southern swamp hunt at some point. Uh-huh, yeah. It's just totally different. So those just like different kind of experiences experiential adventure is a, is another cool thing that you can get out of a whitetail hunt when you know nothing against the ag land midwest stuff that we do in michigan it's it's great but it's it's kind of cool to push yourself in new mm-hmm. ways too yeah and you use that framework that you know and apply it to you know very very different situations you're going to learn a ton that way too i'm sure exactly i think that's the very best way to become a better deer hunter is go new places like put yourself in new scenarios i think that that's the very best thing i ever did was just going not just sitting and hunting the same place over and over and over and over again. You can stagnate so easily doing that. Yeah. So just trying new places, whether it's different states or different locations within the known state or just different properties, just those forcing yourself into new situations just gets the, the learning engine moving. Yeah. Well, Mark, appreciate it. I mean, every time we have you on, we learn a ton. Um, have a blast talking to you so thank you so much for for making the time and yeah thanks mark for people who i always forget to do this but for people who want to learn more where can they find you they can uh, listen to the wired to hunt podcast wherever you get your podcasts they can follow everything i've got going on on social media uh it's wired to hunt is the handle that's on twitter facebook instagram instagram's where i'm most uh, active and uh they could watch the back 40 show that's over on the meat eater youtube channel Awesome. Well, thank you, man. We'll uh, we'll talk to you real soon. Hey, you're welcome. I appreciate it. It's fun. Yeah, thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Boga Hunting Podcast. If you guys like what you hear and want to follow along on what we're currently up to, 
Hit that subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening on and follow us on Instagram at Volga Hunting.